0: All opinions and views expressed on this podcast do not reflect official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the United States government.
1: Hello, Airmen, Soldiers, Sailors, Marines, Guardians, and all the rest of you humans out there. And welcome to Engaged, a joint-based McGuire-Dix-Lakehurst diversity and inclusion podcast. I'm your host, Chip.
0: And I'm Rafi. And today we're joined by a special guest. His name is Colonel Cyrus. He is the leader of the Afghan withdrawal, uh, the famous one that had a very diverse team, in fact. And we're going to give him a minute to introduce himself.
2: Hello, Colonel. Hello, Rafi, and uh, thanks for having me today. Um, So when you say leader of Afghan withdrawal, I'm going to correct you there just real quick because uh, I was designated as the Joint Airspace Component Coordination Element uh, for U.S. Forces Afghanistan forward uh, to be his JACE and uh, represent the headquarters component there at Kabul. Um, So I wasn't technically in charge of the Afghan withdrawal, um, but I was lucky enough to uh, be partnered up with some amazing uh, joint partners, airmen, soldiers, sailors, Marines, um, even a few guardians out there, um, as we, um, conducted that withdrawal. And it was, a it was a humbling experience watching, uh, that joint team conduct that withdrawal. I got to see a lot of amazing, amazing people doing some pretty amazing things, um, during that event. And, uh, what was unique about that event, it was a diverse team of people uh, that conducted that event. And it kind of makes me think back of, uh, you know, how I was raised and how I grew up. Born in Virginia, Um, my father was in the military. Um, We quickly transitioned to California, moving from base to base, never really spent more than uh, three or four years at any location, culminating uh, with my graduation at Yokota Air Base in Japan. Got to spend three years there as a military dependent. And then uh, following high school, got selected to go to college in Texas. Um, So did my four, four years in Texas, um, actually turned out to be five years and then uh, commissioned into the Air Force. And then throughout my Air Force career, obviously I've been stationed in uh, you know several locations. It's an 06 now coming on 25 years, um, starting in, in Texas and Florida and then moving to Arizona and then back to Texas, um, doing some professional military, military education, spent some time in D.C. at the Pentagon. Was lucky enough to get picked up for uh, command opportunities. Went out to Travis. That's where I started my stint in contingency response as a squadron commander out at Travis. Um, in between squadron command and group command, I was lucky enough to go to uh, Germany for a year, do some more professional military education. And then uh, finally landing here as the 621 CRG, contingency response group commander at, uh, at Joint Base McGuire de Clayhurst. And it's just a pleasure having this job. It's an amazing opportunity. If the Air Force would let me, I would continue doing this for the rest of my career. Um, because watching the airmen in contention response, um, is just an amazing thing. And then going back to uh, what happened in Afghanistan, obviously, contention response was one of the main capabilities that was tasked to support that. And it just so happened that it was the 61 CRG that rolled into the bull to help uh, complete that airlift and complete that NEO mission.
1: Right. I, I, it's a really awesome story background that you have, sir. Um uh, what I'm hearing is a lot of uh, opportunities for a, a diverse past, like being going all over the world and, and seeing places as a dependent, and also as a military member and leading people from all sorts of backgrounds and and cultures
0: and and different upbringings. Uh, I think that leads us right into our topic today, right, Rafi? Yep. So our topic today is going to be leading diverse teams and inclusive teams, right? And uh, before I get into the definitions, I do want to point out to our viewers, uh, so or our listeners. Um, I had the opportunity to talk to some of your members that were down there and uh, uh, just a little bit of what you know. So when we talk about inclusive teams and we'll we'll be referencing this a lot is when those doors opened off those planes, a lot of the members were actually excited to see that it was Colonel Cyrus on the ground meeting them. Um, They were, they were very excited about that. And, and there's a reason why, and we'll go into that as we go in, but let's go into the uh, definition of diversity so this is broadly defined as a uh, concept of individual skills, experiences, and abilities that are consistent with core values and the mission. So it includes life experiences, geographical and social, socioeconomical backgrounds, cultural uh, knowledge, education background, work experience, language, physical abilities, uh, psychological and spiritual perspectives, and then age, race, ethnic, ethnicity, and gender. It, um, it also encompasses a lot of things from like demographic diversity, from uh, uh, behavioral diversity, from organizational structure diversity, and global diversity. And then we're going to talk a little bit about inclus- inclusion and what, what uh, inclusive teams, how to make a good inclusive teams. And the definition of inclusion is the process of creating a culture where all members of an organization are free to make their fullest contributions to success of the group, and where there are no unnecessary boundaries and barriers to success. So with that, I will let you guys get into your your topic a little bit about building inclusive and diverse teams and leading them and how to, how to best do that.
1: I'm, I'm right behind you. I'm at 21 years, uh, and obviously not at the group level I have not led, or uh, I've, I've done it at about the squadron level and below um, as a senior NCO. I have a lot of thoughts and ideas on on diversity and inclusiveness. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm here doing a podcast about it. Uh, there's lots of different ways that I, I like to make a team come together uh, and get to know people. Getting to know your people uh, as well as you can and getting to uh, understand where they came from and how they uh, became the person that they are working with you today. I imagine that is a little bit harder at the group or squadron level where you're at versus at the flight or squadron level where I've been at what are some of the things that, um, that you do to get to know your people, to
2: build that that team and inclusivity, sir? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it's definitely difficult at the group level. Um, you're not necessarily a middleman at the group level. Um, you are a commander of commanders. So you don't have that direct linkage um, that you would have as a squadron commander uh, to your teams. Um, interesting enough, um, when, we, when we look at diversity, you know, tying it back into my background, Growing up in the Air Force, you know, I was an operator, a C 130 navigator by trade. Um, I didn't spend a lot of time um, with diverse teams uh, when it comes to functionality of those teams, right? Um, it was pretty much the crew, pilot, navigator, flight engineer, loadmaster, uh, the maintainers, the, the aeroport capability that supported us, and that was it. Um, however, as I transitioned into potential response leadership roles as a squadron DO first and then as a squadron commander, I was exposed to more breadth of functionality in the Air Force. Everything from, from defenders to aeroport, to maintenance, to supply, uh, logistics, um, almost any functionality the Air Force has is resident with NCR. And so I think being a leader in a CR squadron made me a better leader of diverse teams, if that makes sense. Um, because now we're looking at, um, you know, that, that deep level diversity of functionality, um, those things that you can't really see on the surface. Um, and with that comes typically the surface level diversity, um, the physical traits that you can see. Um, working with those airmen in that job um, was interesting because I learned a lot about how they will operate, how they function, how they think, and why they do what they do, right? And one of the things that enabled me to become a better leader, uh, in my opinion, was, was being able to get out, walk around, and immerse myself in the mission sets with them, because I had to. In my role as a squadron commander, I was also um, a deployed team leader or deployed commander in the contingency response element. So I couldn't sit behind my desk as a squadron commander. I couldn't just sit there and push paperwork and, and give directions. I had to actually get out, go TDY with the members, and uh, operate with those members. And so all that you know comes together. Now I bring those experiences with me as a group commander, and I can help mentor, coach, and lead the squadron commanders that are, that are coming through now um, with those experiences. I I know exactly how you feel. I spent most of my career
1: just as a Security Forces member. Uh, And then then, um, I had a a very lucky TDY uh, to a very small unit in Cyprus. It was very diverse and uh, only a few cops, and we were working very much with other people. And then coming here to the CR, some of the things that I did coming here and also at that that TDY that I spoke of, uh, I I went out and about and just said hi, people. I was fortunate enough to be Security Forces patrolling around and seeing everybody work and just getting to know people and asking what they're doing. I'm assuming that you have a few tips on on how you get to know people, number one, uh, and number two, how you get them involved in, and, and included throughout the mission and, and tying them in, whether it be talking with the SMEs here at the, 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 at the CRG or the CRS when you were the squadron commander and getting to find out more about logistics and getting to find out more about fuels well, that's part of logistics and, and security forces or um, whether it's just going out and about and tasking people with different ideas or, or coming up with ways to, to make team building happen. Uh, do you have any uh, suggestions or, or tips or tricks that you used over the years to, to get to know your people and, and find out more about the different things involved in the mission?
2: Yeah, a, a couple of tips. Um, one that comes to mind right away is, uh, you know, the, the cliche of the open-door policy, right? You know, a lot of commanders say they have an open-door policy, but you normally got to run the gauntlet of the exec and the secretary to get to get to that commander. Um, I was lucky enough to have a back door in my office as a squadron commander, Mm -hmm. so that was the door I would direct everybody to if they really wanted to talk to me. Um, That's one thing is, you know, you got to walk the walk when it comes to saying you have an open door policy. Um, That includes, you know, you'll hear a lot of commanders or leaders say, get out, you know, walk around, get to know people. One thing unique about being a, you know, not only a squadron commander, but a deployed commander in the field within that same mission set is that it forces you to get to know your people. when you're out talking to the people and you think it's strictly business and you're trying to get the mission done, there will be times you know where the mission is slow enough that you can actually stop and get to know those people. Don't worry about whether you know that the perimeter's got the defender on it or whether the the planes going to be received and parked appropriately. You know those things will happen. But when you have that time available, talk to the people, get to know them, let them get to know you, be vulnerable, understand their backgrounds, understand what makes them tick, understand why they're, they're serving. Um, Those are the kind of questions that you want to ask and uh, be honest with them. When they ask you the same thing and and let them ask you the same thing, be vulnerable enough where you can talk to them and you can explain, Hey, you know, I may be an 06, you know, I may be somebody that's in group command now, but that doesn't mean I haven't made mistakes in my life. Um, I don't have lessons learned um, and lessons that I can share to help people along the way. I wasn't perfect in college. You know, I I mentioned earlier, I was on the five-year plan, right? Right. It was a year I didn't do so well in college because I I wanted to party a little too hard. Um, And eventually, you know, I took the five-year plan um, to get where I wanted to be. So there's lessons in life um, that everybody has to share. And I think if we can be open and honest with each other and share those lessons, I think we'll we'll understand each other better We'll work better as a a diverse and inclusive
1: team. Right, one of the the things that we talk about uh, a lot, a a recurring theme is communication and how it goes both ways Um, and how as a follower, uh, it's just as much a responsibility to provide your leader with feedback if something's not going right or or you have input as it is for the, the leader to provide you feedback as a follower. That that happens a lot. So uh, clear and transparent feedback going both ways, communication going both ways, regardless of where you're at. I, I I have seen that's probably one of the best ways to build my my teams over the years is uh, getting to know my people and making them have an environment of safety where they feel like they can talk to me uh, whenever they want. Does that does that lead us into Something else, Rafi, environment of safety or, or a topic that you need us to expand on some more?
0: Yeah, so what you guys are talking about is great. You guys you guys touched on a, a lot of different things here. One of the things I want to point out uh, to a lot of our listeners out there is uh, if you can imagine when a lot of these terms are for some civilians out there that are listening are kind of confusing. So when he's saying group, if you could just imagine a C corporation and when he says squadron commander, so he is running the group and that is the, the Colossal Corporation and then he has subsist- subsidiaries which are the squadron commanders and, and they're running the, the subsidiary companies. So if you, if you could, if you just imagine that it'll be easier to focus in on what he's, what he's talking about for, for them. And with that, I want to get into something. So you were talking about having an open door policy and being able to, to have that information and not have, have it run through the gauntlet and stuff. So, so um, what that's, what that's giving you is basically you're trying to get, form your own version of, of a group thing and, um, you see this a lot in, in uh, what, we, what we see in the business world as well with our staff meetings and then we, we see it a lot with, with uh, uh, corporate meetings and so on like that. And it tends to happen, it, what tends to happen in these meetings is called uh, collective information sampling bias. And basically what that is, is uh, members un, under this, this bias tend to uh, only want to validate or take influence and are more influenced by information that is held by more of the members. So basically, if the majority holds this information, uh, members will tend to uh, listen to, to that information and, and put more value on that information. It tends to also cause the less likely and little time discussing uh, unshared unique biases or unshared unique information. So um, if, if uh, say, two people are the loudest in the room, that could also be something as well, and they're they're very loud about uh, Project A, it'll be very less likely for uh, Project B to, uh, to become the... Uh, the the solution or the to be voiced during that group setting, and you can see that actually becomes a problem because um, when this happens, uh, we tend to uh, prefer to not validate um, other people, and then it risks the apprehension um, of the eva- of, of uh, evaluation, and that it limits the expressing of some ideas, and perhaps having uh, straight up shut down people uh, have. People tend to disagree more. And, and if people d- disapprove of what they're saying, they'll be less likely to speak up um, later on. Um, and that goes into uh, uh, inclusive climates, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but the thing to remember here is what I'm trying to tell you guys, is people have strong social ties. And it makes it more likely if you have a strong social tie with someone that this sharing of information that is different may actually... Uh, out a little bit better so if you build that that strong social tie which leads to psychological safety uh you'll be more likely to uh to share that information about uh, collective information sampling bias and that again is the bias towards uh information that is shared by the majority i imagine
1: there's plenty of times where you're you're in staff meetings or wing meetings or group meetings and you feel like you might not be getting all the information that you need to get, obviously most of the time there's a slideshow or, or something of that nature that kind of has the information that everybody knows, as long as they did their homework beforehand and took the, the slides. There's always the quiet guy or gal in the, in the audience. Um, what, are, what are a few ways that you get them to, to feel safe and open up about things uh, and and give you the honest truth about what's going on with the program or... or uh, 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 specific mission or goal for their section around the the group or the organization sir
2: so one thing that comes to mind obviously is uh you got to give everybody an opportunity to have input right um so in a staff meeting which you can equate to a you know a board meeting you, you need to make sure everybody at least has time for an opinion or to voice a concern and you got to protect those members um That are being vulnerable you know if it's not necessarily the right opinion or you know maybe maybe it's not even a staff meeting maybe it's a you know they're out trying to make a decision you got to protect them from those honest mistakes right um to make sure that everybody sees that and then everybody understands that in the future you know hey the commander is willing to protect me if i make a mistake or the commander is willing to accept at least my opinion even if that's not you know the final decision um, and so i think one of the things i try to do in staff meetings is allow everybody the opportunity to talk um, given you know my, my experiences and my history i realize and i make a conscience effort to, to understand that i am not the smartest person in the room when it comes to consensus response there are people that have more time and have dedicated more effort into a specific um, capability or trait um, with respect to the overall holistic capability of continuous response and even the time frame you know comes into play right I, I did my, most of my tour and experiences from 2014 to 2017 and transition in the group command in 2019 um, so I'm not on the road in the mission set as much as I used to be um, so I have to number one trust my squadron commanders and then let them you know in turn trust their people and if they're bringing subject matter experts into the room we need to give those subject matter experts time uh, to voice their opinion and and let them have a say and then we make decisions sometimes we make decisions based on the best available information and we move forward sometimes we don't have the best available information but you still got to make a decision you know in some of these things And, and we'll use afghanistan you know the neo for example we didn't always have the best decisions available, and that wasn't a, a board meeting or a staff meeting. That was an operational environment where decisions had to be made. Um, I wasn't in my contingency response role in that mission, um, and I know when Rafi talked about the first plane landing and the, and the team seeing me and being happy to see me, hey, that's great, but number one, I was there to facilitate them doing their job, and once they landed and took over, you know, I got out of the way because that was their role in that mission set, and I knew all those folks that came were experts in what they did. So I had to step aside and let them do their thing,
1: right? Essentially, you're showing them, "Hey, I'm I'm here for your top cover, and I trust the job you're doing, um, and I'll let you know if I need something. But you definitely need to let me know if you need something. or I got you." Yeah. Um, well, yeah, there's, there's a
0: there's there's a little bit more to that to that story, um, so I just want to throw that in there before before you left to Afghanistan, you you were you were here with the team um, at the CRG, and um, you you went on a deployment that wasn't to Afghanistan. And right and so so you weren't expecting this at the time like right. you, were, you were not expecting to have this team but you left this team and, and you were w- what we're trying to point out here is um, he wasn't preparing this team to like he didn't know he was going to be in Afghanistan with this team like he was leaving on a sole uh, mission on a different deployment um, somewhere else and then he went to Afghanistan and then the c130 lands and lo and behold here's the team that he was building back at the CRG and they the doors open up and hey here's our commander that was building us up from there so so that that, that brings leadership in in full circle and uh, it takes a full understanding of you leave with the team that you have you don't leave with the team that you want so um, that is why it is, it is crucial to try to build the trust and in, in psychological safety because what psychological safety does and what you guys are talking about is, is the ability to have the trust to one, be able to make mistakes. Um, two, to be able to bring communication to you without having the, the, um, the, the, the consequences. Of reprisals to bring communication and there there is a good example of this and i, I I'd like to lean back on the the 2006 CEO of Ford um, so what he did uh, he took over and and as as most of our listeners will know is he used to have staff meetings just like you and what he would do is he would he would ha- have um, his predecessor would have a color code and it was if everything is good it would be green if, every, if everything is is 75 percent or or um, mild, it would be yellow, and if everything was was going bad, it would be red. And what he would do is, when the CEO would sit there and he had all his executives at the table, if any executive showed a slide that was um, his predecessor, this is for his predecessor, um, that would show red. Uh, it was almost a death sentence; you were fired. Uh, that was that was the end end all be all. Like if there, if that was red, you are done. Um, and so what a lot what ended up happening is that that killed the psychological safety of that open communication within Ford. And, and everyone kind of remembers what was happening in Ford in, in, the, in the early 2000s. Um, it wasn't doing too hot. So, but the, the CEO was being told, Hey, everything's good to go. It's, it's, it's good. We're green. We're good. We're good to go. And then the new CEO in, in 2006 uh, took over and he was sitting in the seat and uh, and he actually sat there and when they were showing him all green, he would sit there and it took a while. It took a while to build this, build this trust. It's not easy to build trust, especially when it's coming from a broken, um, broken place. But, um, he would say our company is losing millions of dollars a day. Uh, how is everything good? (laughs) And so eventually one executive took the risk and, and they put yellow on the, on the board. And what he did is he did something that you do. And he went around the room and he, he, he had everyone help this person and got the resources to that person um, to eventually end up fixing the issue. And then more and more executives were able to bring up communications like, "Hey, this isn't going well." And then, as you see, you know, for today, they're they're um, they're about to release the the Ford Lightning now. So they're 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 innovating now, and and they've come a long way um, as far as the company. I, I really like following that company. Um, but that brings me into uh, something called the diversity value. Uh, 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 perspective and um, I think it's important to highlight the similarities that exist across people to help build these bridges that you were talking about earlier with the ideas and the unique information that they share in common with each other Um, and there are different ways you can do that Um, but here I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the the diversity value uh, perspective. And so you've no doubt have heard people talk about the value and the diversity. And there is indeed a potential for diversity to lead into more innovation and decision talking. But the idea is that when you're, when you got more diverse groups in a member, the diverse, the diversity that it brings, um, will actually create, uh, uh, what's called, uh, conflicts. And I know that. That when when you have people engaging in conflicts that you kind of think of like oh this is, this is a, a negative so the, the term conflict in this in this term is not actually negative it, it, um, because what it, it, what it does is actually good for people because it allows them to share different ideas and perspectives to get to understand each other and to learn from each other and to actually end up ultimately going towards uh, what the best goal would be for, for your company or for your organization um, is, is what they would be arguing. So, so if you think about it that way, um, we have different leaders across the military. And if you think about leaders that value um, that, that value people and leaders that are, that are strictly valuing missions, it would be good to have that conflict in there because now you have a good mix of people and mission. Um, and your solution, and you you won't have just hey, mission, but we lost uh, over thirty percent of our people, and and uh, to to uh, turnover or or, or whatever um, in that in that aspect, um, and and that that is uh, one of the leadership traits. So um, with that, I want to leave you guys with this uh, comment here, and I'll let you guys get into your discussions. Um, so one of the ways that uh, you can you can help highlight psychological safety is um, allowing people to make mistakes. right? And there is a university um, that, that I did a little bit of research on, I I'm not gonna throw their name out there, but um, what they did is they, it was a business university, in their business school, in their main hallway, what they wanted to do is they wanted to highlight everyone's mistakes, like all the professors' mistakes and what they've learned from it and how they, how they fixed it. So in their hallway, if you walk through their business hallway, every mistake that a professor has ever made in their careers getting up to that point um, that they're open and willing to share is up there and how they bounce back and build that resiliency for it. Um, And the reason why they do that is because they want to celebrate their mistakes and not just celebrate, hey, we made a mistake and we didn't do anything about it. They're celebrating, hey, we made a mistake and we got together and fixed it together. So that's what psychological safety uh, brings. So I want to, I want to give that example to you guys. And and uh, let's get into some some ways you guys can dive in a little bit on how to do this. I know you mentioned a, a, a deep deep level uh, diversity, and that goes hand in hand with uh, with grouping. So there there is some perspective some of those people will have as well. So I'll let you guys have that conversation.
1: Yeah, um, something that we talk about a lot about is, is failure and and um, learning from it. Uh, there's one of my favorite quotes is I. It's Nelson Mandela. It's a, I never lose. I either win or I learn, um, and, and that's that's what I look at with failure at, at this point in my life. Um, and and I try to look at that with with my airmen uh, and my and my NCOs that I lead. Um, I and I try to stress the point like we're we're all learning always. Like, did anybody die today? No. Okay, something got messed up, but like let's learn from it, and let's come up with a process to to. Uh, Fix it and learn from it, and so next time we win from it. Um, that's uh, it, it's always just a huge learning lesson for me. It took me a long time to to uh, accept that failure is is actually a growth point. Um, I, that I spent a good chunk of my career and my life before the Air Force just trying not to fail, um, instead of realizing that oh, this is actually okay. You learn you learn more from this than you do for studying or preparing. Uh, for success every single time and being successful, I imagine that you probably have done similar things uh, throughout your career in subordinates or and with yourself as far as failure is concerned and how you incorporate uh, your subordinates and peers and maybe even leaders to like try to say, hey, this is a learning point or this is uh, this is something that we can take a positive away from. You always can take a positive away from it and, and learn for next time. I. I don't know which ways you might have incorporated that, or if you can think of an example of, of when you've done that and it's been quite successful. Also a two-parter, uh, an example of that. And then also um, ways that you encourage people to like come forward with those failures within the mission, because there is a lot of times where you got their red, yellow and green charts and people are just like, Oh, let's keep it green. And, like, Everything's good. Just keep it green. And, and they don't want to show that, Oh, there is something messed up, especially to the, the CEO, of the group commander, uh, the
2: commander? Yeah, so <clears throat> I can't think of very specific examples um, of that, of what you're talking about, but I can kind of lean into what my mantra is when I'm trying to build these diverse and inclusive teams. Um, so I like to coach and mentor commanders that they need to know the difference between a mistake, an honest mistake, and a crime or a violation of the regulations, AFIs, et cetera, right? And so what that does, it it holds people accountable, number one, if they're truly committing a crime or doing something in violation intentionally. If they're truly making a mistake and you are a leader that's going to protect them from the mistake and you're going to walk the walk, um, then you need to be the one that's willing to accept whatever consequences there are for those mistakes. And so here's how I try to live. Myself as being a leader and, and being a commander is, I tell my commanders, I tell my subordinates, go out there, make all the mistakes you need to make, um, learn from those mistakes and become a better, you know, whatever it may be, you know, functionality, airman, um, team member, etc. I will take responsibility for that mistake if it goes above my level. Some mistakes will obviously rise to a wing commander level or an even higher level because of the actions or reactions of what happened, right? Right. And so that's where you got to be willing as a leader that's willing to, to build these diverse and inclusive teams to take accountability in that case to protect your subordinates. So if, if we go out there and we we ding an aircraft because we, we were trying something new, um, then I need to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take responsibility for that and nobody below me is going to take any accountable actions. If there's accountable actions to be had, put them on me because I wanted my team to, to Innovate, to try something new, to to do something um, that would lead to a more effective and efficient, you know, product. However, you know, if they commit a crime or they violate intentionally something that they weren't supposed to do, then you need to hold them accountable. And everybody needs to see that you're holding them accountable. So everybody will understand that, you know, you're living up to your mantra. As senior leaders, you know, they're gonna ask us to to accomplish the mission. It's up to us to figure out how to do that the best. We can, right? And so to get at that most effective and efficient solution of accomplishing the mission, you have to have a diverse thought process. You need to have somebody red teaming the groupthink. I know we mentioned groupthink earlier, right? Right. You need to pull somebody out of the crowd and make them solely responsible for being the naysayer or, or red teaming those ideas so that you can come up with that diverse level of thought to combat that groupthink. Um I, I think that's very important. Uh, when accomplishing the mission
1: right now there is something to be said where this the whole room is shaking their head yes like and then there's somebody that's assigned to actually think about like hold on no and here's why i'm saying especially if they take the time to research to think of the cons um it's one thing to have a whole bunch of everybody agreeing and yays and then uh i mean even if it's you know it, even if they're put in place by you as a leader like, hey, I, you might agree with what the group is thinking on this, but I need to, I, you specifically are the, the, the person that is going to say why this isn't a yay. Like, come up with the bad ideas, because we might not all be saying it as a group. We might have our, our, our group think blinders on. Uh,
0: what do you got, Rafi? So, yeah, I, I, like, I like what you guys are talking about there, and I want to kind of touch in a little bit on the diversity side. I know we were hitting a lot on the inclusion side, but so consider this. So consider all the people that are under your command right now. And um, you have uh, not just not just uh, officers, but you also have enlisted um, that are that are falling under that chain um, um, that you are you are responsible for. And I like how you how you mentioned um, you, you know you, you want you want people to take take accountability uh, of these actions and and take accountability um, that goes into extreme ownership, um, which which I think is a is a great leadership trait. Uh, it's talked about in a lot of different podcasts um, as well as including the Jocko podcast. So. Um, uh, I think it's, a, it's a, great, uh, a great method to go by um, but now consider the people that you have and um, there is one, one key factor um, that, that uh, we found by looking at, at your group and you have uh, both enlisted and then you have uh, officers and typically uh, people automatically say hey officers are, are the smarter ones because they have to have a degree when they come in and I know from a prior conversation that we had uh, right before this podcast you had uh, you had mentioned Hey, a lot of your enlisted force is, has degrees as well. Um, I know a lot of your enlisted force have, have master degrees and, and so on like that. And a lot of them come from different backgrounds as well. They, they might speak multiple languages and so on like that. Um, and it's about the journey about that, that, that leads to that sub-level, uh, diversity that we were talking about earlier, uh, that brings these unique sp- perspectives in there. Um, so say, for example, someone earning their degree at a traditional university, um, where they're a four-time student and maybe working only a part-time job or, or, are uh, not working a career, whereas someone getting a degree and uh, working a, a full-time career and using the degree 2 events in their career. So it brings two different perspectives in there. So I wanted to kind of touch on that and how that leads to that diverse uh, environment um, on the education level, because um, with age and education and, and ethnicity and so on, um, education level, there's a huge diverse uh, part of that, and it goes into a little bit more of a subgroup uh, with how you got that education as well because it, it, it changes your perspective on on life and how to handle things and career choices
1: well i'm
0: a, one of the guys that has the very minimal education for uh
1: for the air force as far as a, I, i'm one of the associates degree guys what 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 do i need to to for to check boxes for the air force um, i do have plans to chase things after the air force but I, i've been focusing more on my career so i I am one of those guys that's at a different education level, and like maybe one of the reasons why somebody is, is like oh, our enlisted forces isn't as educated as our our uh, officer corps. But I, I mean, you know, there's plenty of things that I bring to the table um, between leadership traits and obviously my career field um, and, and lessons learned throughout my life. Uh, I think good leaders recognize that there is importance to degrees, and there's importance to um, education and importance to uh, seeking further opportunities uh, to, to better yourself, not just for yourself, but for the, the mission that you're in. I I did spend a, about a year full-time in college before um, I switched over to active duty in the Air Force uh, a long time ago. I know it was a lot easier for me to be focused 100% on school and just being a full-time student and a, and a part-time soldier back then. Uh, than it was for me to be an active duty airman and, and try to uh, accomplish classes and be a, a dad and, and a spouse and, and all that fun stuff. Uh, I, to me, just going to classes and bettering yourself, for the most part, it's something that I I value as a, as a strong characteristic if you're an active duty member. Um, not to say that our officer corps is any less because they all went to school, because there's plenty of officer corps that were enlisted members that did exactly that and got their degree in transition. I just... I, I like to value people based off of their performance and what I see out of them versus uh, what they have on a piece of paper. Um, not to say that that's something like not a big deal. It is a big deal to have your master's or your bachelor's degree. I, I, I base my opinion usually off performance, getting to know somebody in performance. I don't know if you're the same way, Colonel, I, I but like I said, even if you don't have a degree, if I know that you're going to school and, and busting it and still um, being uh, uh, a mom of, of children and, and airmen and CO in the Air Force, to me, that says a lot. It's like you, you're able to multitask and handle a lot of stresses all at once. Um, and and that you're a strong person. And you're probably somebody I need to get to know who can give me more valuable experiences and, and tell me about things in life and, and
2: mission. Yeah, you make me think of uh, Simon Sinek, you know, when you want to hire the person that has the right attitude versus the person that has the right skills, right? If you're trying to do something to better yourself, then obviously your attitude about what you want in life is probably different than somebody who's, you know, just working on, you know, trying to get the skills that they need. Um, and when we talk about educational backgrounds, you know, as a as a trait of diversity, um, I think Rafi mentioned that, you know, even a, there's a subset of how you got that educational background that can lead to even a diverse set of group as well, too, right? So... There's some things that are just out there that are mandatory. You got to have a bachelor's degree to commission into the military. Um, but you'll see that a lot of both officers and enlisted work on. Now I'll say officers work on the higher level postgraduate degrees. You know, while they're in the military, most of them, some of them get them before they come in the military. Um, and and similar to the enlisted counterparts who work typically work on degrees. Know while they're in the military, whether it's night school or they get some some time off to go do it, whatever Um, that that to me is a subset of um, the educational trait of diversity. Um, But the the big thing here, the big takeaway is that when building those diverse and inclusive teams, you need people you know with all those traits, right? You may need the person that has the master's degree for the the technical competence, um, but that necessarily doesn't make that person the smartest person in the room when it comes to what you're trying to accomplish. You may need the person that has the educational experiences through life choices or through life experience, you know, the the quote-unquote street smart person, right, to help you fulfill, you know, the best choices or develop that, that best team. And that's what we talk about when we say we want diverse and inclusive teams, is we want people from all walks of life, you know, yeah, I want somebody with a master's degree, maybe even a PhD on my team. But at the same time, I want somebody that maybe has already done, you know, what we're trying to accomplish. That may may not even have the degree in the first place. Um, somebody that's got experience um, with that particular thing I'm trying to accomplish. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, 100. Um, I think, it, and Rafi and I are, are kind of like the the opposite ends, right? Like here, here I am, senior NCO, and I'm still. I've got one, one class away from my associate's degree and, and Rafi's working on his, uh, his master's MBA, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I know, yeah, I know that, but when we go into meetings and and talk comp stuff or, or, or whatever, and it's the two of us, I know that between the both of us, especially here, uh, both of our values are, are, um, are very highly regarded regardless, uh, either between the experiences and all the stuff that we've done uh, or, or education levels everyone knows that ralphie and i bring different things to the table i i, I am somebody that thinks uh creatively and he's one who thinks uh, critically like so <laughs> it, it, it's it's i like something that we've identified in our team work together like you be the technical guy and i'll, and I'll be the guy that thinks on the i know you know the drop of a dime and it comes up with ideas or questions and and let's come together and see how this is going to work um i mean if. That's the way you got to do it. Look look around the room and see what you got. Um, cool, yeah. There's people with degrees, and, and there's people with life experiences. Now, how do you team those folks up together to to accomplish the goals or tasks at hand? That's that's the way that I've always looked at it. And roughly what do you got?
0: Yeah, so before uh, you guys are talking about, it kind of reminds me. Um, and this is diving a little bit in my past, a little bit. Um, uh, but uh, I remember a long time ago, I was on patrol and uh, in the Air Force, and and um, most the uh, most of our training is done very professionally, so um, you you get you get to uh, be told uh, when when you're going through security forces training, you know you have to uh, maintain dominance over the scene, you have to say sir, and so on like that. But then there's a lot of street smarts that go into it as well that you will only get if if you um, actually get the uh, testile knowledge that goes along with that, um, and that's basically the working knowledge um, of how to actually get people to talk to you and so on. So you're, when you're investigating uh, a crime or so on like that, so. Um, and it, it reminds me of, of knowing the subgroups that, that exist in your area, and this is very important. Um, so when I was a patrolman, um, there, was a, there was a subgroup uh, of Hispanics, and uh, we had a, at a certain base, we had a bus stop uh, that existed. Uh, it, was out, it, was, it was on our property. Um, however, it was, it was accessible to uh, civilians. So um, at the bus stop, uh, whenever we, we needed to go talk to someone, if you, if you didn't know how to talk to that subgroup, and in this case, the, the, uh, at the time, it was, it, there was some Hispanic gangs that would hang out there. If you didn't know how to talk to them um, and, and their, their culture uh, of how to talk to them, you, might, you will never get the information that you wanted. So in, the, in this case, I'll, I'll just give you the, the uh, state. It was in Arizona. Um, if you wanted to talk to them, you had to understand their culture. And you can't just walk up to, to them and say, hey, I, I basically demand yourself to speak to whoever's in charge there. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so you had to bite, bite your ego a little bit, and you had to come up there and, and ask, hey, do you, may I talk to um, this person? And they, they'll, they'll run through the show and be like, no, like, and, and go back and forth. And then eventually, they, they if, if you are respectful, they will most, most likely talk to you as long as you you're you respectful and, um, in that manner of within their culture. And there's, there's a lot of different ways of, of, of talking to people. So it's like having that street smart of those subgroups that, that exist. But that also leads into something else. So when you form these subgroups, we tend to have um, this judging lens versus this learning lens. I know we're, we're talking a lot about like, hey, you have these subgroups and we've been talking a lot about the learning lens and how you can learn off, off everything. But, but more than likely, people often tend to uh, form a judging lens. And that goes back into some of the, the other topics we talked about with both unconscious bias. But um, when you have that judging lens, it tends to put favoritism towards certain groups, and you see that a lot throughout throughout the careers. Like, so there, there's no doubt about this. Um, if you talk about the Air Force and you look at uh, job categories in, in the Air Force, um, certain job categories are are considered higher and usually hold will hold higher positions. So, um, and there's a unique story about uh, uh, Colonel Cyrus here. Um, he is not a pilot. He's actually a navigator, which. Um, and, and we talked about this is, is sometimes can be can be a rarity to be to be a commander that's not a, not a not a pilot um, in the Air Force. And so so certain job categories and with these, these subgroups, um, same with security forces and so on. Um, and it, you could break down a little bit more with, with uh, patrolmen versus uh, police admin and people doing admin administrative work and, and where the preference tends to fall. And there depending on the organization you're at. Um, you form these subgroups, and these per- and and then their opinions and their their um, and glass door basically is limited based off what subgroup you put in there because you're you're looking at it from a judging lens versus a learning lens, and it, it has nothing to do with the person's ability or anything like that. Right, so um,
1: we're kind of <laughs> we're kind of talking like breaking stereotypes a little bit here, right? Like, so yeah, Colonel, if you want to talk about like any kind of uh, things that. You felt might have been different, uh, being a navigator versus being a pilot. Since there is a lot of like group commander and above level positions, uh, like like outside of mission support or something that it's typically a pilot. It's a, a commander in that position. Uh, I I don't know what kind of input you have on that. Um, I'm, I'm trying to come up with some stories where I was kind of out of my box as a defender. Um, what do you got for me, sir?
2: Yeah. So I mean, this could be a touchy subject, but it's not for me, right? We're we're all professional officers, you know, in the service of our country, the profession of arms. It, it's almost like um, the demographics, right? There's X number of pilots, X number of navigators, which happens to be a whole lot smaller than the group of pilots. We're all been under the rated officer category. Um, so while we say, you know, traditionally there's not very many navigator commanders, well, that's just related to the demographics, right? It's, right. it's almost at the same subset of you know, navigators to pilots, um, this all falls under, you know, having, you know, these demographics of air force specialties could fall under, you know, a subset of culture, right. And just having cultural intelligence, um, when it comes to that, you mentioned, you know, the Hispanic crowd, you know, at the base in Arizona, it's, it's all goes down to cultural intelligence. Um, you can't go in and disrespect people no matter who they are, whether, you know, it's a subset of, of ethnicity or a subset of functionality, you got to be open and uh, understand cultural intelligence, you know, to move forward, to move the ball forward when it comes to uh, to leading and commanding. Um, so you know, I, I don't have any, you know, I, I probably have some unconscious biases, you know, but I think I recognize them um, being a navigator in the Air Force. It, it just helps me, you know, be a better leader, you know, recognizing those unconscious unconscious biases.
1: Right. Um, I. Yeah, I I am still trying to come up with an example or, or something that I can think of uh, as of late. I this would be the the time, right? Like this is the time where it's not a bunch of defenders here. It's you know we're maybe a quarter or, or less of the, the this this
0: group. Oh, consider- it's been a very inclusive time here. Um, go go ahead, Robbie. I was going to say consider consider this. So consider the air force, the air force and the military as a whole. Okay, um, and there are jobs that are that are that that people look at so if if i were to bring up um value and and this is just the unconscious bias here um that people will hold but if i if i were to bring up hey um and we we assign value to the job so if i bought up a a a pararescu you know from right so so special forces pararescuement i bought them up and i said okay uh compare that person to someone um who works in, say, uh, services, which which um, they do a very good job, uh, and they they provide a lot of services to the base, from military affairs to to the chow hall and so on like that. For anyone who, who doesn't know what they do, and they do a lot more than, than just that. But if I, you compare the two jobs right there, um, uh, and and so there is a bias, and it's it's oh, uh, yeah. between the value that you add on their on their job, and then that also goes into that. That when they are speaking and when they are trying to present ideas, the value you put into that. And that actually goes into a lot. And it, it may not be happening between between you two. And I'm very, very excited that. Well, day.
1: I, I had my aha moment now when you yeah. said that. It started thinking about. Uh, so, growing up in the Air Force in general, yeah, there is the stigma, security forces stigma, and services stigma. And thank you for making that, uh, that, oh, uh, you guys are on the low end of the ASFAB score. Uh, you guys are a bunch of, yeah, who cares what the cops think? Just stand out there and check an ID. Who cares what the service guys think? Hey, I me my basketball, and my, my towel. I'm going to go work out. Um, you know, it's a wrong mindset to have, right? Just because that, that career field is associated with something like that, uh, it's definitely the wrong mindset to have. Um, again, yeah, you're, you're a cop, Rafi, but uh, you got your MBA. You're one of the smartest people I know. I don't have my MBA yet. Just <laughs> Sorry, sorry. you are working on your MBA this right, year. This year, thank you. Yeah, um, and you are one of the smartest guys I know. But if I just went with that stigma, like whatever, man, you are a knuckle dragger. You are a cop. Go, go, go <laughs> bust a door down. Then you know I am certainly disservicing you and, and any other cop and, and their knowledge on life or their life experiences or their education levels by having that blinder of it's a severe blinder. I think um, I that ties into what we were thinking, right, or what we're talking about, Rocky? Yes. Yeah. Colonel, yeah. I, I don't know if you got anything to add
2: on that. Yeah, yeah I wanted to jump in on uh, on the CR potential response mission set as a whole, right? When, when we think of CR and when we look at uh, what we do, I would tend to say that it is aerial port heavy and specific um, associated around the aircraft and the airfield. And then I think that mentality kind of manifests itself in our group and in our airmen. And so when we're talking about, you know, you you guys are mentioning the defenders and the the service folks. Now, if we take just a peel back and look at just the CR mission mission set and we look at what I think probably most people look at as the most uh, highlighted AFSC within our group, you know, being the aerial reporters and everything revolving around, you know, loading and unloading aircraft, even with that, you know, in order to get to that, you need all the parts and pieces that right. come with it right to to make that happen without the defenders providing ramp and camp security the plane doesn't land or, right. or the or the camp gets overrun right and then we never get to that aerial port mission set without the air traffic controllers the aircraft don't don't land without the weather you know we don't have the capability to tell the planes whether they can even come in you know under visual right. flight rules or instrument flight rules or not and all those parts and pieces have to work together as a cohesive team, you know, regardless of who thinks they're most important um, in the end for that mission to happen.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Most, most definitely. I agree. A hundred percent. There's de- definitely, I forgot where you. if you're feeling that way or if somebody feels that way, it's probably good for you to like, think about it. And obviously we're all here for a reason in this mission set, uh, it's that certainly could be applied across the DOD, whatever section, platoon, brigade, company, wing, group, whatever you're in, uh, you, just think about that. If you think that somebody's not a part of the team or they're, like it's pointless to have it, then maybe educate, get educated or, or find out. I mean, if it's there, there's a reason. There's a reason for everybody in each one of these units and, and teams that we're in. Uh, everybody has their own mindset to make the mission happen. Uh, you give me the look again, Robbie, what we got?
0: All right. So, so with that, I want to throw in, um, that there are, it breaks down more and more and more. So as you go into career fields, so like now we're talking about, say like, like services. Okay. So, so there could be, there, there could be a judging lens on the, the individuals that are assigned to work, um, within the chow halls or the, or the dining facilities, um, versus the, the people who are working at the gym and the there's preference given to the people that are working at the gym. And it actually can translate um, in data shows from corporations. I haven't looked at any data within the military, and I'm hoping that it it is zero, but um, data from corporations shows that when when these types of subgrouping are done and they are done in a judging lens, those people, even though they may be performing very, very well, are likely to be scrutinized a lot more on their evaluations um, compared to the other people who... Who may not have have been performing at that same level, but but it is it is something that uh, the corporate world has has uh, identified in, in the diversity and inclusion world. Um, so when you when you break down the, the deep level uh, uh, subgroups, that 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 is that is why it's important to have a learning lens um, versus a judging lens. And with that, I want to get into some solutions to this. And I I okay. have a uh, I have I have one solution that uh, the military has, and I've, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it before. Uh, and, and so this, this is from the Air Force, and and every branch has a version of this. Um, it may not be the same, but it's it's a team building. And the way that I like to see people team build is is uh, how how other corporations do. And what they do is they they identify these issues, and instead of keeping you within your group, your your specific group, right, like like your your subgroup that you've developed, they like to mix you in with another group. That especially if you if you don't get along, and partner you up with those other groups and so on, like, with members from those other groups, so you have to have to do this. But um, one of the ways that you can do this, and, and I know you've talked about it a lot uh, before, uh, is the Unite funds. You can use that um, to to go on and do activities, and there's different activities you can do. You've all heard of a rope course um, and, and these de- different team-building uh, exercises that you can do. It sounds silly, um, but when you think about it in our military history, it's not really silly, because what is the point of an obstacle in right. our military history, it, it is exactly that is what it is. Is to build that small team mentality, but building the correct small team mentality is what's needed. And if you are if you, if you start looking at your team as a whole, that is that is what you're trying to do. You're not trying to divide your team. You're trying to build that that correct small small team mentality. And then we, um, um, that's why we PT together. That's why we we have our, our our senior leaders up front and our PT um, leading the charge. That's why we, we allow members to to lead the jodis. As well, and step in, um, and and senior leaders guide them on that on that path as well. So, um, with that, uh, what are your guys' suggestions on on how to build this? So, I I don't know uh, if you want to go first, Colonel. I'll, I'll shut my mouth. Yeah, I do have an idea on this one. Yeah, uh, no, Rappy
2: has actually made my brain um, the light bulb come on here a little bit. I think, you know, I, I've learned a lot being a commander in this group, both group commander and squadron commander. You know, over time, I haven't seen the issues that Rafi's pointed out lately, because we take all our airmen, we put them on the same level playing field. They're all important to our mission set. And we pretty much live, train, eat, work together, day in and day out. And, and I think, you know, if, if I had to go back and say, what makes contention response so successful? It's the fact that we do that. We, we live, train, eat, play, work together. Uh, day in and day out across all these functional specialties maybe that's something that the air force as a whole needs to consider when we're doing squadron pt or we're doing squadron unite fun events is let's partner up with somebody that's not in our unit and go out and do this together right right And and we learn not only about each other but we learn more about why we're doing what we do as part of our specialty in the military it just it just seems like an interesting unique concept Um, and and if we want to become a better service more inclusive um, understanding one another having the cultural intelligence to understand all the different specialties maybe that's something that we could do
1: right I I, and and I'll add I you and I were kind of on the same page here with this one so the CR uh, to me is probably minus the last Mm -hmm. you know 18 months with with pandemic but Before that, there was always some kind of family events or group events or squadron events, even wing events that that were always planned regularly. I think the CR has the... The condition response has the the opportunity a lot more. It's it's all we do is train and fight. Uh, And and there's plenty of opportunities when we're on the training part of it for us to say, hey, we're going to kind of take a pause in training on on Friday and and, and have this uh, event. Uh, That happens quite a bit, I'm sure, after... Pandemic dies down, it'll start to pick back up a little bit more. Um, but the other thing that I, I think we do is we we call it building multi capable airmen, right? So my, uh, there's a lot of defenders that know how to run forklifts and, and help offload aircraft. There's uh, you know there's everybody gets taught how to be a defender in the CR. They, they go to a course for for three weeks before they actually uh, get uh, CR started to be a defender. Uh, at least in, in an air-based defense environment, that's – I don't know how we incorporate that at a, at a big scale level. That would be kind of cool to see, like, you know, the cops going on a field trip to, to maintenance squadron or or, or whatnot. I, I know there's Augment program, which is a little bit different, but, uh, and, you know, it, getting people to learn other people's jobs um, I think would be an awesome one. Yeah, just
2: having having a maintainer come out and, and work the gate as an augmentee. I don't know if that's the right answer because you're just right. you're just mission focused, mission oriented. But if we can build in the time um, to let these squadrons intermingle a little bit more when they're not specifically focused on the mission, you know, maybe maybe they do unite events together. Right. Or, you know, maybe they go out and, and do something else, you know, they go out and conduct a multi multi-capable airman type mission together um, in a agile combat employment environment. Right. Um, as we build, and you mentioned multi-capable airmen, you know, there, there's there's other things that go along with that. It's not just the cross-functional training of learning how to drive the forklift, but there's other pillars to becoming a good multi-capable airman. You know, the expeditionary skill set of learning how to live in a tent and eat an MRE is not something that has been resident in our programs, you know, over the past couple of decades. Because we're used to going to main operating bases and, and right. operating out of there. Um, but we need to, to relearn and rebuild that skill set of being having that expeditionary mindset, and then there's a proficiency bill that comes along with it too, right? You know, there's there's a reason why defenders and CR and Army Group A and we we shoot once a year. Is we need to be more proficient at doing that because we're exposed to you know less than um, permissive conditions when we're out in the field. Right. Um, that is another pillar of building a multi-capable airman is increasing the proficiency level. You can teach a, a maintainer how to of munitions on a on a fighter but you need to give them the opportunity to do that more often um, in a proficiency skill set than you would just hey I, I taught him once how to do it now you know five years later he's going to go execute the multi-capable mission he's probably not going to be very proficient at doing it at that point right so um, just keep in mind you know proficiency expeditionary mindset and then that you know if we can incorporate all those things while let, letting these diverse mission sets train and, and work and operate together then I think we're going to build, you know, a better air force in the long run.
1: Right. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, yeah, this, this is one of the few places I. There's so many times where I want to say, "Hey, like, can we use the CR as the model for the whole air force?" Uh, uh, obviously, it couldn't quite work that way. Um, the whole air force can't be ready to go at no notice. <laughs> um, they, that would be awesome if it could, but uh, that's the reason why we we're, we're we're here. Uh, but some of the, the stuff that we're able to do since we are smaller and, and uh, lighter and lethal, and able to con- to focus more on training, uh, I-, I think it helps out a lot with, with us. Where are we at, Rafi? Are we, are we wrapping up? We yep. Looking um, at it like oh wow. So I just
0: wanted to point out to our, you, right? point out yeah. to our listeners. So so everything you heard today from um, from our guests and, and from our host. Um, if you were wondering from the beginning when we talked about how uh, Colonel Cyrus went on a different on a, on a totally different uh, deployment and then ended up in, in Afghanistan. and I guess, and then when I said uh, his members were excited uh, when, when the doors opened up and uh, their terms were uh, thank God when, when they saw, when they saw him there, the reason why that happened is because he has the six signature traits of an inclusive leader. Those are the commitment, courage, uh, consciousness of bias, uh, curiosity, cultural intelligence and collaboration that, that have led to all of these, uh, all, and, and he applied them so well. And that led to his team, uh, wanting him as the leader. And when, when they saw him on the ground, they were, they were excited. So with that, I'll wrap it up. Uh, please join us, uh, uh, next time. Um, we'll be at actually recording at the Pentagon and talking to some of the leaders out there. So, um, before we go, let's, let's say our goodbyes. Yeah. I appreciate your time today, sir. It's an absolute pleasure.
1: Every time I do one of these, it's, it's one of my most favorite times of the day. Uh, and it was absolutely brilliant and and enjoyed speaking with you today and, and learning a few things. Hopefully
2: you got a little bit out of us as well. Anything you'd like to make in closing, sir? No, I just want to say thanks to the team. You know, although you've heard, uh, Three of us on the mics, we've also got certain Trinidad in the background, making sure everything works uh, appropriately and is getting done uh, in accordance with what uh, the diversity and inclusion working group wants to get done. Um, I, I appreciate the time talking with you. Um, I know you're making our Air Force better and uh, keep keep up the good work. Thanks. You
1: beat me to it, sir. I always thank attorney on the way out. <laughs> appreciate you, sir. Uh, take it easy,
0: humans. We'll see you next time. See you later, Engagers. If you like that episode, please like and subscribe. Also, follow us on Facebook. If you wish to make contact with the JBMDL Diversity and Inclusion Working Group, please email 87abw.cvb.diversityinclusion at US.af.bell.